more and more. We want to welcome you to Arden First. If you are visiting, you're not a visitor, you're a guest. We want you to feel right at home. We like to say we're a place where you can belong, believe, and become. This time, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we get ready to open his word. If you will, please pray with me. Father, thank you for that wonderful time of worship. And our confession is that we need you. And Father, we're reminded that we have to come humbly and seek you with all of our hearts. So Lord, as we look into your word, help us to understand what it's like to follow you. And help us to walk away with the truth that there's joy in following Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Today we continue on in our series through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse. A few announcements. This first uh, diagram on your um, pick uh, screen is our discipleship pathway. A lot of times in churches people say, I want to know what my next step is. So we've outlined a map like you're walking through a, a little countryside and the first step is being active in worship. So we want to encourage you, as you guys are, you're worshiping and be active and be engaged. And the second step is being connected to community. We encourage everybody, if you're not in a life group or a Sunday school class, to get involved. And if there's not a group for you, let us know. We'll try to start more groups. The third step is as you're connected, you begin to embrace your place through serving and giving. And we're a place that, that there's many ministry teams you can get connected to, just like you had the choir behind us. Wouldn't it be nice to surprise Elaine and have 10 new people audition for the choir next week? So we're recruiting all of you. And then step four is you multiply yourself. We believe that every Christian should be a reproducing Christian. And our theme each year is each one reach one. So what would it like if, if everyone reached one person for Christ? So that's, that's kind of the pathway. So you look at where you're at. If you're at step one, try to get to step two. If some of you are multiplying, take someone else through the pathway with you. All right, with that being said, I have a few pictures. The first one is of a child being born. How many of you can remember when you had that child or grandchild come into the world? Do you remember the joy and the excitement that you experienced? Lori and I were reminiscing about Kira, oldest. My wife's in the nursery, so uh, we were reminiscing about Kira. She turned seven uh, this December, and we're just kind of blown away. Where did seven years go? But when, when a child is born, there's so much joy and excitement. This next picture is of finishing a major project. Can you guys remember when you graduated from high school or college and the excitement when you finally crossed that finish line? You remember the late night coffee, 2 o'clock in the morning, drinking coffee to stay up? How many of you remember those days? I'm still in those days. i got about a year left trying to get through. Uh, for those of you who have been married, when you, whenever you said, I do, that just brings so much joy. I like to say it like this. A lot, of, a lot of you guys, when you were in first grade, you thought all girls had cooties. And somewhere along the line... You, you, you made that audacious, unmitigated gall to have some audacity to ask that girl, will you marry me? Spend the rest of my life. Think about how audacious that was. And uh, I still remember Lori and I, um, when we got married, uh, it was just one of those memories I'll, I'll never forget. Take it with me. What about retirement? I haven't got there. I've got a few more years left, right? But some of you, when you retired, you thought you'd drive away into the sunset. Walk along the beaches. And some of you, that, that brought great joy when you finally said, this is my last day at work. Some of you are smiling because you remember that last day. What about having a belly laugh with a friend? You know what a belly laugh is where you just 
chuckling from within and the excitement's coming out and you just you just can't contain it. Well, if you haven't grasped the theme, we're talking about joy today. And today as we look in this text, we're going to talk about the joy of following Jesus. And just a little preview, the disciples experienced some joy and Jesus is he's excited that they're joyful. But then he's going to say, here's a deeper joy. And we're going to talk about what that is. So let's look in Luke 10, starting in verse 17. Then the 70 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my father. And no one knows the son who the son is except the father. And who the father is except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. And he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it. And to hear what you hear and have not heard it. May God bless his word. So today we're going to talk about three truths about following Jesus, three things that should give us great joy. The first truth is this. Those who follow Jesus experience great joy in serving him passionately. So we have the 70. They return from their mission voyage. And a little review for those of you who weren't here last week. We talked about the 70 is a kind of important number because 70 in the Old Testament goes back to Genesis 10, I believe it was, after Noah got off the ark and the flood, there were 70 nations, the table of nations we find in Genesis 10. And then in, in Exodus, you find Moses, he's trying to lead a group of people, about 2 to 3 million approximately. And his father, father-in-law Jethro, remember, wasn't the guy from the Beverly Hillbillies, but Jethro in Exodus said, Moses, what you're doing is not really wise because you're wearing yourself out. You're wearing the people out. If you want to lead a great group of people, you've got to have some great leaders. So a few chapters later, the Lord said to Moses, pick 70 elders from the people. And these people will govern 50 people, 100 people, 500 accordingly, based upon their ability. So you have 70 again. Fast forward to the New Testament. You had the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And guess how many people were in the Sanhedrin? 70. So we talked about last week, just to have a little bridge for this week's message. Whenever the 12 were sent out, we know from Matthew that Jesus said, go to the Israelites only, only to the lost sheep of Israel. But in Luke chapter 10, when he sends the 70 out, they go everywhere. And that was symbolic of the gospels for all the nations, all 70 nations. Get the gospel to every man, woman, and child. Notice in verse 17, the disciples it said the 70 return with joy. The word joy here is the word kara. And it's basically closely associated with grace. 
And um, I was talking to the first service, we were kind of laughing about, we were talking about what is joy and happiness. And I like to describe it like this, joy and happiness are so different. Let's use an analogy from your kids and grandkids. How many of you have ever been by a kiddie pool? All right. You know, it's fun in a kiddie pool and everything's exciting until you have the lifeguard blow the whistle and say everyone out of the pool. Usually you find something floating in the pool and they have to get it out and sanitize the water. And you know how that goes. That's like happiness. Happiness is good, but happiness is swimming in the kiddie pool. It's shallow. It's superficial. It's based upon circumstances. I had a high school principal, his name, was, his name is Ed Elledge, and he used to say happiness, he was talking to the school, it stands for H-A-P-P-Y, and I remember it 20 years later, having another person please you. And that's really, that's happy. We're happy when people are nice, but when things don't go well, it's like the kiddie pool, everybody get out. Joy is like swimming in the deep end. It's not circumstantial, it's not based upon what's going on. It's diving deep, like you're deep into God. One theologian said it like this. Here's what joy is. The joy of the Lord is the gladness of the heart that comes from knowing God, abiding in Christ, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again in case you want to write it down. The joy of the Lord is the gladness of the heart that comes from, number one, knowing God, abiding in Christ, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I don't want us hanging out in the kiddie pool, happiness, because that comes and goes I want us diving into the deep end. So the disciples return with joy. What were they joyful about? Well, you read in verse 17, they return with joy saying, even the demons are subject to your name. So they were excited that they had power over darkness. Now imagine if I commission, if, if the, the, the elders of the church and myself, the staff, we commission every one of you to go out and to pray for people, heal the sick, cast out demons. And you guys came back next Sunday and said, guess what? It worked. We saw people healed from cancer. And we, we saw, you know, people just supernaturally, things were changed. Don't you think this church would be a little ex- full of joy? And that's, that, that's very joyful. So joy is a fruit of the Spirit, but also it's experienced by the gifts of the Spirit, seeing God move and it's like those who serve Jesus passionately experience joy. And you guys know what I'm saying. When you're serving God, you see him do things. You see him move, and it produces this great joy. In Nehemiah 8.10, you guys are familiar with this verse. He said, the joy of the Lord is your what? Is your strength. So if you feel a little tired today, you need a little more J-O-Y, joy in your tank. Now, here's the thing. You have joy. But sometimes you're not experiencing it. It's just like the fruit of the Spirit never goes away. But sometimes it's like fruit that shrinks. It's in shriveled form. And you need the Holy Spirit and you need the grace of God to water it. So you experience the fruit that's there. That's why many people say no one can take your joy. They can take your experience of it because you forfeit it. But it's still there. It's inside of you. So look at verse 18. The disciples are saying, you know, we casted out demons and Jesus was excited for them. And then in verse 18, he said, I saw Satan fall. I saw the fall. I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. So here's the idea. If you read between the lines, the demons are little league and Satan was big league. And the only reason why you can see demons flee at the name of Jesus and people get healed and delivered is because Satan has fallen. And you ask yourself, well, how has Satan fallen? Well, 
It goes back to the Old Testament. There's a lot of clues and a lot of passages. Satan fell from heaven when he got prideful in his heart. And some scholars believe that Satan was the worship leader of heaven, that he was the cherub that covers, and, and that they speculate that perhaps he had this prestigious position of leading worship. And somehow he wanted the worship for himself. And he got lifted up in pride. If you have a listening guide, I have Isaiah 14 in your, your listening guide. This is a parallel. Many scholars believe this is talking about Satan's fall. Isaiah 14:12. it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. So when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall, here it is. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you said in your heart... Now, before I read what he said, I want you to notice how many times there's I. That's the thing about pride. The very center of pride is the letter I. Now, listen to this. Satan said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation on the further sides of the north. I will ascend above the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest parts of the pit. So here's the idea. The disciples are so excited and joyful because they had power over the enemy. And Jesus said, listen, I saw Satan fall. So the only reason why we as Christians have victory over Satan is because Satan has been defeated. And he will be defeated. And there's several places in the Bible that talks about Satan being cast out. And you even see in Revelation, Satan, he still has somewhat access to heaven, which confuses people. But He's up there accusing in Revelation, I believe it's chapter 12, Satan will eventually forever be cast out and he'll be cast into the lake of fire. There's many times in the Bible where Satan is cast out. But the imagery is this, he's a defeated foe. So as a Christian, you can have victory over Satan. That should be good news, amen? So also we experience great excitement living in godly authority over the power of darkness. Look at verse 19. Now this is interesting. It says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing by any means shall hurt you. So here's the idea. Jesus, when he commissioned them with authority, anybody ever watch the old Wild West movies, those little westerns? There was something that the sheriff did to the people that he wanted under him. It was called deputized them. You ever seen that where he deputized them? So this was kind of, if this was in the setting of the Wild West, you could say that Jesus deputized his disciples. I give you power and authority. Now, what's the difference between power and authority? What would, what, what's the difference? Well, let's use it this way. We have several in our church that have family members involved in law enforcement. What's interesting the, the police officer can stop the traffic, and this 150, 200-pound police officer, he or she, can stop the traffic with a stop sign, and a semi-truck that weighs several tons will stop. Now, the police officer doesn't have the power, but he or she has the authority. You get what I'm saying? For those of you who are more into sports, I know we have some football fans in here. You have this little skinny referee on the field. You ever notice how skinny referees are? They're wearing their black and white uniform and whenever this 300 pound linebacker gets out of line he takes this yellow flag and throws it out and even the 300 pound linebacker is still and he can't say anything back to the referee and if he does he can send the linebacker to the showers see the linebacker has power but not authority so going back to verse number 19 behold i give you the authority Here in this particular case, it talks about the authority of the believer. In other passages, it talks about the power of the believer. 
Acts 1.8, if you're taking notes, is a parallel. It says, you shall receive power. It's a dunamis power. So here's the beautiful thing. Some people have authority. Other people have power. As a Christian, you have both power and authority. So here's the thing. When you read the disciples and they're like, you won't believe what we did. A lot of us that's so remote. Listen, if you walk in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, you too can see God do wonders. Amen. So one question before we move on. This whole issue about serpents and scorpions. Is this literal or figurative? Because some people have taken this literally and handled snakes. You know, we're going to start a snake handling ministry, Arden, first, right? Because of this verse, right? No, just kidding. For a 60th year anniversary, we're starting a new ministry. We're not. But here's the idea. Some people take it literally. But if you look at the context and you look at the scripture, Jesus talking about Satan falling from heaven. The disciples are talking about casting out demons. So I believe, with respect to my other friends, I believe it's figurative of evil. And I'll give you some parallel references of this. Ezekiel 2.6. Ezekiel was worried about people. And he said, you have all these people around you and you live among them like scorpions. And he talks about they're rebellious people. So God calls rebellious people like scorpions. Another parallel, Psalm 31 You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. Now, is this talking about literally? Well, it could involve that, but ideally it's talking about evil. You're going to have power over evil. So here's the take home before we go to the next point. I want you guys to see the great reversal in this. Anytime Satan is cast out, anytime there's victory over evil in a big way or in a little way, It's the great reversal. So if you look at Genesis 3, Satan got a victory when when mankind sinned, right? He got a victory. But ever since then, God has been trying to reverse the curse. Reverse the curse. So whenever you see someone give their life to Christ, that's one piece of reversing the curse. Now we know, biblically, the curse will not be fully reversed until we see the, the eternal kingdom coming in. The new heaven, the new earth, and eternity begins. That's when the curse will be fully reversed. But the great reversal looks like this. Anytime God heals a marriage that was going towards divorce, anytime someone gives their life to Christ, anytime you see a teenager struggling with depression and people rally around him or her and he he finds hope even in the midst of hardship in school, these are examples of God reversing the curse. I was listening to a pastor recently, and this stuck with me. He said, you want the Bible in three words? I'm going to give you the Bible in three words. Basically, God is the whole subject matter, but if you had three themes, it would be this. The first word is creation. God created a perfect world with perfect people. Then there was devastation. So from creation to devastation, sin came into the world. But from devastation on, God is working on restoration. So creation, devastation, restoration. And I don't know about you, but every time I turn on the news network, it's the BNN, the bad news network. You ever notice that? But you know what? As Christians, we should tune into the GNN, the good news network, or the gospel news network. Because we're, we're not about the devastation. We're about God stepping into the devastation and bringing restoration. That'll make even a First Baptist say, Amen. So before we go on, verse 20 is really important. Jesus said, listen, okay, you're rejoicing in these things. But he said, don't. Let's look back at verse 20. This is so powerful. 
He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, it's good to have joy in seeing God do great things. But the greater joy, the one that you should focus on, is not in the miracles, not in the wonders, not in the signs, but that your name is written in heaven. And I think there's a very practical illustration that we can have. A lot of us do ministry. You're Sunday school teachers. You work with the children. All those are great things, and you rejoice. But you know what? God's more important, more concerned in who you are than in what you do. It's your identity in Christ. So as Christians, we can be just like the 70. You know, we've seen God do great works. We've seen revivals. We've seen miracles and all that's rejoicing. But listen, it's who you are that's more important than what you do. That your name is written in heaven. In other words, you're going to be with God forever. And that's more important than anything you could do or say. Amen. All right, let's continue on. Point number two. There's joy in following Jesus, not only in serving him passionately, but number two, in knowing him personally. A missionary society wrote to David Livingston saying, we want to send more missionaries your way. We know you're in the remote parts of the jungle. We want to send people, but we want to know, Pastor Livingston, are there roads to where you're at? If there's good roads, we're going to send you some good men on the mission field. And Livingston wrote back, if you have men who will only come if there's a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there's no road at all. And that's so powerful. We can serve him passionately because we know him personally. Look at verse 21. You see a lot of joy in this passage. The disciples are rejoicing at what they have done. Demons are subject to the name of Christ. But look at Jesus. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. Now, a few things I want you to write down. Number one, in verse 21, you have the Trinity all at work. You, you notice that? Jesus was there. He was filled with the Spirit and he was praying to the Father. So you have Jesus on mission for God, doing the Father's will in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? You see the Trinity working. So Jesus rejoiced in that. But something I want you guys to take home with you is that you came to Christ not because you're smarter than anyone else, not because you're more educated or you're just insightful. The wisdom of the world doesn't bring us to Christ. The reason why you and I came to faith in Christ is God gave you divine revelation. Jesus said you've hidden these truths from the wise and prudent. In other words, those who are prideful and their achievements, there are certain things that are hidden. But those who come like babies... We talked a few weeks ago about traits of a child. And one of the traits we mentioned is humility. Children come with humility. And that's the thing. Jesus allows us to come to him when we come humbly. That's why Jesus gives the illustration. It's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, excuse me, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. Why is that? Well, it's not wrong having great riches. It's when great riches have you. It's you have to humble yourself. If you're humble, it'll keep you from the stumble. So here, here's the truth I want to encourage you guys with. The more humble you become following Jesus, the more truth he reveals to you. The more prideful you become, the less truth you have. So if you want God to reveal mysteries to you, you have to walk in humility. Amen? Or ouch. <laughs> so verse 22, he says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. 
So here, here's the key point. You and I come to Jesus only because he reveals God to us. Did you know that none of us come to Jesus on our own initiative? He has to draw us. As I mentioned many Sundays, I believe everyone has a chance to be saved. But the only reason why we have a chance is God draws us in. He draws us in. But here's the thing. God has given us free will, and you can say no. But the only reason why you can say yes is God's grace has drawn you in with his love and kindness. And God uses the most unlikely people to do great things. How many of you have ever been in a Methodist church before? Raise your hand. All right. I was raised Wesleyan Methodist. And there's a guy that's the founder. What's his name? John Wesley. Now, something about John that's interesting. He had a cool hair, by the way, the, the, the white wig. I need, to, I need to preach one day on the white wig. Come up here, powdered wig. Surprise you guys. But, you know, one thing about him, if you've ever been to Lake Genaluska, it's the headquarter of Methodism. And John Wesley, did you, does anybody know how tall he was? He was five foot three. And they have a little statue. You stand up next to him. Nothing wrong with being short. But what's interesting, he was five three. And he was in a world where people were not always kind. There's so many stories of him being dragged through the streets in his hair, the wig, and he kept preaching. And he was a good student, but he wasn't a great student. And he was the 15th child of Samuel and Susan Wesley. Talk about a lot of kids. He weighed just 128 pounds for most of his life. And according to history, he struggled with angers of depression, anger, and fear. So you have a guy who's 5'3", in a world that's not always kind, drugged through the streets sometimes by ruffins. He struggled with depression and fear, anxiety. And let me tell you how God used him. In his lifetime, he traveled, this is before airplanes, he traveled 250,000 miles. He preached over 40,000 sermons. I was trying to do the math. 40,000 sermons, that's several sermons a day throughout England and America. By the time he died... This is in his lifetime. There were 80,000 people who were Methodists. And today, there are over 80 million Methodists because this, this guy. And why, why do I use him as an example? It's because Jesus said, you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. The reason why John Wesley was so greatly used by God is he walked in power and authority. And by the way, this is available for every Christian. There's power and authority. And it really is. And we can trust in him. So Jesus tells us that we know him just because the Father revealed himself to us through Christ. Christ reveals the Father to us. And my wife's in the nursery, so I'm going to use her as an example. She's not, she's, she can't hear this illustration, this service. But she heard it last service. But um, I, I relate to this illustration because I chose Lori before she chose me. You guys, most of you know the story. She rejected me. I don't know why. Five months wouldn't date me. But finally, she, of her own free will, decided to go on one date. And from then on, we went on dates like every day for months. And it didn't take long to know. Within a month, we knew that we were going to get married. And here's the thing. I can use this analogy for this. Jesus can look at us, and this is John 15:16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And here's the thing. My wife's the same way. I chose her before she chose me. So it's kind of like this. Jesus, he chooses us, but you have to respond to his choice. You can be like a diva, hard to get, run away. Or you can say, Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to me. I'm going to follow you. Amen. All right. The final truth is this. Those who follow Jesus 
not only serve him passionately, not only know him personally, but experience great joy in experiencing him practically. Look at verse 23. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and not seen them, and to hear what you hear and have not heard him. I was reading a story recently of a woman who was suffering great depression. In her marriage, it wasn't going so well. She thought it would be happily ever after, but it was a lot of drama in her marriage. In her job, she thought it would be a great career, but she found herself clocking in, clocking out, getting angry at coworkers. In her personal life, she just felt like she was breaking apart. So one day she was sitting in her kitchen, drinking some tea, praying, and out of nowhere, a little sparrow flew into the house. She didn't know how the sparrow got there, but the sparrow kept darting around, and she's like, i got to get the sparrow out, because the sparrow kept hitting the windowsill trying to get out. So she opened the door right below her window, and the sparrow would not go through the door, but kept hitting the window, hitting the window. And every time the sparrow hit the window, it would get weaker and weaker And it would get lower and lower and lower until finally the sparrow couldn't fly. And just in a few moments, the sparrow walked out the door. And the sparrow realized that it was free and it regained strength and flew again. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to this woman and said, Listen, you're trying to do it your own way. You keep running into the window. Every time you react in anger, you're you're hitting yourself. You're dropping down. Every time you yell at your husband, like you're dropping in, you're hitting the brick wall. And she just like, I keep on messing up. And the Lord spoke to her, if you'll just walk through the door, you'll find freedom. If you will just trust in me, stop trying to do it on your own, you will find freedom. And I think when we read this scripture, Jesus says that God does certain things. He says, blessed are your eyes that see the things that you see. Now, here's the thing. We don't see Jesus right now because he's in heaven. But I, I, w- I would propose to you, we do see Jesus through the body of Christ. Did you realize that Christ's body is the local church? And Jesus came on earth for one mission. What was it? He said, I will build my church. He came to seek and to save the lost, to build his church. And every time you are part of the body of Christ, the bride, you begin to hear and see what Jesus looks like when the body operates the way it should. And um, I'll give an illustration. Uh, Recently, there's been so many of you pouring out love towards the Shaw family meals and prayers and and we're beginning to see he keeps on improving and to me it's like a miracle that god turned it around for him and that's that's prayers that's love and that's an example we don't see jesus but when we see love like that it paints a picture of who jesus is and does and jesus said there's many people that wanted to hear the things that you hear and have not heard it now we got the sayings of christ and the early church apostles recorded in the Bible. So every time we read the Bible, we hear Jesus. But there's another point I think we should think about. If you really want to know what a husband is like, who do you talk to? His wife, right? The spouse. And I think as we, the body of Christ, mirror what Christ looks like, you guys paint hues and colors of what God is like. And some of you are gifted with mercy. Some of you are gifted with kindness, with generosity, with love. Some of you have passion to see people come to faith in Christ. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. So whenever all the gifts of the Spirit flow, we begin to see a picture emerge of how beautiful the Father is. 
because his bride is reflecting him. Amen. So, by way of application, today we talked about three points. There's such joy in following Jesus, number one, when you serve him passionately. You know, the disciples came back, the 70, and said, Jesus, we can't believe all the stuff we've experienced. And Jesus said, the greatest joy is knowing that your name is written in heaven. All those things are great, but the greatest joy is knowing me. We talked about, we experienced great joy in knowing him personally. Jesus said, this is eternal life that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. And we experience great joy in experiencing him practically. You know, some of you have come to faith because of someone else that showed you love. It's been said the greatest gospel is in shoe level, leather, people living out the word, living out the truth. So here's, here's a few action steps before we give the sermon in a sentence. on your listening guide. Next Sunday, because the gospel is so important, we talked about the importance of the local church, the bride of Christ. I want to encourage all of you to invite someone to church next Sunday. Bring a friend, bring a neighbor, bring a coworker. Because here's the thing. This church, for those of you who haven't thought about it lately, this church, the sanctuary holds about 400, 450. And we have a, over, like I think, 30 Sunday school classrooms. We have a place that is ready to receive the community. We have a place that needs people coming to Christ, coming to Christ. So I would encourage you to invite people. This Wednesday we're having our 60th celebration. And maybe there are people that have come here in the past. And we just want to love on them. We want them to share their stories. We're not trying to recruit them back into the church if they have been a part of the church. But we want to hear their voice. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. We wouldn't be here had it not been for the charter members that laid the foundation of this church. Amen. And finally, I want to encourage us, each one reach one. This beginning of the year, I I gave the challenge. Who are you reaching this year? If you haven't noticed, it's almost December. We're coming to the end of the year. So I review the challenge we gave in January. Who are you reaching this year? Who's the one you're reaching? And by the way, we have a baptism coming up. My very own daughter, Noelle, is going to be baptized if If you know someone that needs to be baptized, we're going to open the baptistry, and we want to close the year off with some baptism. So if you've never been baptized as a believer, we want to encourage you. This is going to be your chance. And by the way, if you reach somebody, this is the chance for them to experience the Lord through baptism. All right, the sermon in a sentence, and we'll pray. The joy of following Jesus is knowing that we will be forever with him. Jesus said, knowing that your name is written in heaven, that's the greatest joy. Let us pray. Father, oh, how exciting it is to serve you passionately. Oh, how exciting it is to know you personally. Oh, how exciting it is to experience you practically, Lord. Just like we mentioned with the shawls, people making meals, people showing love, and many other stories we could share. But Jesus, all that being said, we know the greatest joy is knowing you, knowing that our names are written in heaven. So, Father, I want to say a prayer for the believers first of all. If there be a believer in here that's discouraged, that feels depressed, anxiety, stress, many of us can say we we, we feel that or have felt that. If you would just say a prayer like this, Jesus, I feel like the lady in the story that was just doing it her way. And Jesus, I want to humbly come before you and ask for your help and your grace. I don't want to be like the bird, keep hitting the window. 
But I want to be willing to open, come through your open door of trust, open door of knowing you, open door of following you. Jesus, forgive me for trying to do it on my own. Help me to let you work through me. As the believers continue to pray with no one looking around, as we do every Sunday, if there be one here today that you've never prayed to receive Christ, it's just like getting married. You have to say, I do. Just because you're born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you've been baptized as a baby doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is you've personally accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, say a prayer of faith like this. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you were buried and you rose again. I believe the good news. And Jesus, I don't just believe it, I receive it. I pray that you would come into my life. I pray that you would forgive me of all my sins. I turn from them, Jesus, and I turn to you. Thank you, Jesus, for making me a new person. I give my life to you to follow you from this day forward and even forevermore. Father, thank you for the joy of following Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. I know God's children said, amen.